So today we're going to be in 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5, and this is going to be page 257 in your pew Bibles. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. A long road, a long journey for David to become king. I think many people can relate. I think ladies of Serenity House can relate that... uh, He who has began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And so David, as a boy, was this this shepherd boy in one of the lowest positions you could have held at the time. A shepherd's testimony was not allowed in court. Uh, Their testimony was viewed as not substantiated. Um, Just a very lowly position, and this lowly positioned boy becomes king of Israel. And this can trace back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the elders of Israel approach Samuel to ask for a king like the other nations. And looking at verse 5 there, behold, you are old. Thanks a lot for saying that. You know, it's like somebody coming to me. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So Saul was appointed this first king of Israel, but then rejected by God. Then a young David was anointed king where Samuel secretly anointed David amongst all of his brothers to be king and the Spirit of God rushed upon David and and set the course for David to be king. Now this path from shepherd to king is is full of challenges uh, because it's not until 2 Samuel chapter 5 that he's actually crowned king of Israel and yet he was anointed king back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So many ups and downs uh, along this path, and you can read about all of them uh, from 1 Samuel 8 up until this point. And what, uh, we, we read this history of Saul's death just several weeks ago, and it seems that David's path is, is clear from that point on, but we, we know it's not. Because over the past several weeks, we've been reading about what's happened. David is crowned king of Judea, but Abner who is Saul's military leader, goes off and he crowns Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, as king of Israel in Mehanaim. And Abner sees that Ishbosheth is, is not going to make things as smooth as he thought he was going to be to just usurp power. So Abner goes to David to strike this deal. And he, he tries to work it out politically so that David is king of Israel. But then things don't go so smoothly because Abner is summoned back And Joab, one of David's military leaders, kills him. And he kills him as a revenge because Abner killed one of Joab's little brothers in battle. And so after hearing of Abner's death, 
Ishbosheth is assassinated by two men from his own camp because they knew that Abner was really the guy who, who held the power, and it wasn't Ishbosheth that held the power, so they killed him, beheaded him, brought his head to David. So you can see, like, this is not a smooth transition from this shepherd boy to king, even though this is the Lord's will. And so you might even be thinking of your own life, you know, like this is the Lord's will, this is God's uh, anointing on me, or this is a God's appointment on me, like what's going on? You're in good company, you can look at David's life, like this isn't God's anointing, this is God's will, and get all this hardship, all this challenge, all these bumps in the road. Now something to keep in mind, as the kingdom of David is just this microcosm of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and that it hasn't been all that smooth. A lot of ups and downs along the way, and there will continue be, to be these ups and downs until the return of Christ as king. And like David's kingdom, all of the tribes in, king, in the kingdom had to show an allegiance, had to show a loyalty to the king, and they came to recognize David as king, just like those who are part of the kingdom of God, that in order to recognize Jesus Christ as king, there will need to be an allegiance. There will need to be a loyalty to Christ as king. How does someone become a Christian? And it's something like this. That somewhere along the line of someone's life, there's this recognition of who your king is. And so you once had this idea of who was your king, and that is anyone other than Jesus, and then along the way, Jesus became your king. So someone or something else was ruling your life, that that was your master. And so a Christian is someone who has turned the ruling of their own life over to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is now that master of their life. And many times... You don't have to look very far to figure out who is ruling your life and who the king of your life is. You see this person every morning when you wake up and you look in the mirror. That is your king. That is your master. And this master thinks that they determine their own destiny. This master thinks that they determine what you're going to do with your life. And if you are honest with yourself, you realize that that master you're looking at has a lot of faults, has a lot of weaknesses, has a lot of failures. And this master in the mirror doesn't always make the wisest of decisions. And the word of God tells us that we're made in the image of God, but that doesn't mean we glorify God because so often we glorify that person in the mirror. We glorify God as Christians and, and if that glorification is placed on anyone else, anybody else, anything, it will be a critically misdirected glorification. God's word tells us that God made himself known in the person of Jesus and that Jesus is Lord and King, that Jesus is Savior, saving us from giving allegiance, giving loyalty to anyone or anything else that can lead us to destruction, that can't 
lead us away from destruction. And to know Jesus as Savior is to give loyalty, is to give allegiance to Jesus as King. For those who pledge allegiance and loyalty to Christ, it's unfortunately not going to be an easy road for us. There are, there are many false kings wanting to draw you from the one and true king, looking for your loyalty, looking for your allegiance. And so we look no further than Saul of Tarsus as an example. Saul of Tarsus is an extremely religious person, and he prided himself in the knowledge that he had of the scriptures and in his piety, in observing all the religious festivals and keeping to the law. And when people look at these sorts of people, when looking at these committed and pious people, you can't get a much better example than Saul. And there are many people who are like Saul. They're all over the world where you look at them and you, you just kind of view them and you're like, you know, those are good people. Those are intelligent people. They're disciplined. They're moral. They're principled. They're, they're reputable. But the big flaw is that they're not committing their allegiance and their loyalty to Jesus. And so what keeps these good, intelligent people from acknowledging Jesus as their king? What is that? One of the biggest things is pride. It's one's pride. It's, it's that person in the mirror who is actually the greatest obstacle because they think they know better, that they're good people, that they're moral enough, that they're smart enough. See, who your king is tells everyone else so much about you. Now, all of those tribes who gave their allegiance to David as king, everyone else knew where each one of them stood because they gave their allegiance to David as king. And even though each tribe has its own distinctions, they were all united, even though they were so diverse because they were united under this one king, and they knew where each and every one of them stood in relation to this one king. Now, in the Old Testament, the requirements of a king are very clear. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, and it reads, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So this lineage, this brotherhood is a must, and David meets these requirements. And so we look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And this phrase, we are your bone and flesh, probably has a ring to you. If you just think about Genesis, you kind of probably think about this, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so this is a blood relationship. That this is so much more than just simply nationalism. And nationalism has a lot of emotion attached to it. Right? People are very proud of where they're from, uh, their origins, and all you have to do is look at the Olympics where most of those nations don't get gold medals, yet they are so proud. Right? They're very proud. And so no matter what country, they have a nationalistic pride for their own country. And there's a lot of emotion that is tied into it. There's a lot of screaming and flag waving and dressing in one's country's colors. 
but it's not blood. It's not flesh and bone. And in Christ, we are bone and flesh with each other. We are bought with the blood of Christ. And, and even though we come from many tribes, we're very diverse, we are united into one king. We have one king. We are united in Christ. Our unity is having Christ as king. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it's written, That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so brothers uh, is translated from the Greek word adelphoi, which includes brothers and sisters. So it's not just guys, right? It's brothers and sisters. And so Jesus sees those call him king as bone and flesh, that they are brothers and sisters, proud to acknowledge us as such, not ashamed. And just as it was for the tribes of Israel to unite under King David, our unity is under King Jesus. Our identity is in relation to who our King is, King Jesus. And so for the Christian, the question, who are you, is rooted in this identity in Christ. That you know who you are, that you are a child of God, that you are a child of a king, that you are noble. You know, my kids, they just started school recently, and they're so stressed about school already. They all really want to do really well, and I confess a lot of that is because of me, like being a tiger dad. It's like I have to repent of a lot of that. I'm working on it. I really am. But it's so much so that they've broken down in tears over this, right? My fourth grader is really upset because she's struggling with division, and my freshman in high school is upset because she had this geometry test and, and she, she was struggling because they start out with logic and, you know, division I can deal with, but geometry and logic, that was 35 years ago. I don't remember this, like, but a division I remember because I use it often. Like geometry, I don't use that. I do use logic sometimes, but... So they start with logic and like it takes me hours to figure it out first before I can share with her what it is, right? So it's horrible. So I'm in tears too. But anyway, I, I've had to sit down with each one of my daughters on numerous occasions to remind them who they really are and to also remind myself who I am and who they are in the image of God and that they are children of God and the, the thing that gives them value is not these grades or what classes they take and all these sorts of things and it's so hard to deprogram myself from these things because of how I grew up. But they are children of a king. And their identity isn't in their grades or in what they do or in how they perform and how well they're liked by their peers or their teachers or anyone else that their identity is in Christ, that their value is in Christ. And it's so important for us to be able to answer the question, who am I? That your identity is not tied into your career or what you've done in your past or how much money you make or how much stuff you own, that you're a child of God. Verse 2, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And you notice that it was their king who, who led out and brought in Israel. That it wasn't the people. It wasn't them. And the things that the nation overcame wasn't because of 
how great the people were. It wasn't because they were talented, wise, or capable, strong, skilled, smart. It was because of their king. They recognized that it was David who led them to these victories. Now, in our society, in our culture, we are led to believe that we are the ones who lead ourselves to victory, to to greatness. I get it. But at the same time, it's quite arrogant, isn't it? I mean, where's the humility in the thought of that? You know, the people in David's day knew that it wasn't them who led them to victory. They recognized that, you know, it wasn't us that went into battle against Goliath. We, we didn't do that. Right? Even Abner recognized David to be king. 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And so Abner tried to usurp this power, but even he recognized David to be king. He, he tried to make himself king by manipulating the situation with Ishbosheth, but he knew who was really king. He knew who really would lead the people in and lead them out and bring them in. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 tells us this. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And so Abner lived this. He knew this. He experienced this. He knew that the inevitable was approaching, just like Satan knows the inevitable is approaching, that Christ is going to be king. See, he knew Ishbosheth wasn't able to be king. And Ishbosheth himself knew that he wouldn't be king. It was going to be David, and most people are like this, in that we want to be Ishbosheth. We want to be king. We, we want to rule over our own life, and we want to make the calls of, of our own little kingdom. And if we know that we can't be king, then we want to be the closest thing next to it, and we want to be an Abner one who influences it a lot and speaks into it a lot. And we want to be in the place of Jesus, where only Jesus is king, Jesus who is the one who gives us victory. Victory over what? Well, ultimately, death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the only hope for this life is through Christ, through our King, who defeated death on the cross and in the grave. And David is just this mini picture of a victorious King, of a King who has led Israel out and brought Israel in. And David knows who is really behind even his own victories Psalm chapter 121, verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. See, ultimately, it's Jesus. Jesus who conquered sin, death, hell. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Right now, as we live in this world, we're in these ups and downs before the return of Christ. 
and you're going to have these rocky paths, and sometimes they're smooth and sometimes they're rocky, but they're going to continue to be up and down, side to side, until the return of Christ as the rightful king. And right now we're just in the middle of it. But that end is coming. He will be on the throne sometime in the future. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, the stage is already set. The stage is already set for the return of Christ as king. You continue on reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll repeat verse 24 and we'll read through 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, there are people who question often, you know, if God is real, then why is there so much war and why is there so much pain and why is there so much suffering? Why is the world in such a mess if God is real? Why doesn't he just fix things? Right now, Christ is king and he reigns in heaven. But the ruler of this world is not yet Jesus Christ. And the reason is, is that Jesus is patient and he's kind and he's long-suffering to return. Why? Because he loves every person and he's waiting patiently calling them to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why has God not sent Jesus back to reign as king yet? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now why did the people crown King David and give their loyalty and allegiance to King David? Well, first of all, he was their flesh and bone, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. He was also very fruitful in his kingship. He's the one that overcame the Philistines, he's the one that slayed Goliath. He's the one that led them out. He's the one that brought them in. And it was in accordance to God's word. You know, way back when, there was this promise. And David would shepherd God's people. And it goes back to Genesis when God told Abraham, when he called him out of Ur from this paganism, to make of Abraham a holy people, and look at the stars, it numbers that many, that, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And then from that point on, Abraham on, there would be someone shepherding God's people, and you can look at all these great shepherds. We can look at Moses, and then all the people in between, and then it goes to David, and all of these smaller pictures of these shepherds pointing to our great shepherd and our great king in Jesus. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
And this is what it means for those who were once without Christ, who now have Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For those of us in Christ, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our soul. He's king. Now, people don't make very good kings. I don't know if you know this or not, but you just have to look at history. We make horrible kings. And it's why we don't have many, that, many today, right? They, they, they've kind of uh, figured out we don't make very good kings. And if there is one, it's just a, a figurehead. They don't really have any power or really any authority or any influence that they once had, maybe in some smaller countries that, that still exists. And I know um, there's movies made about these sorts of things. But why is that? Because people aren't very good at wielding power and authority and influence. We're really bad at it. And Samuel warned about this, right? First Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 11, he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Which is true, right? They just take your sons and throw them in the military. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And history has proven this to be true. Greed. Power, all these different things. Right? Only Jesus can handle this ultimate power, ultimate authority, ultimate influence well. And only Jesus can be a perfect king. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, of our God, will stand forever. We are grass, but people by nature, we don't want to be ruled. That's our nature. Our nature is to rebel against kings, that we want to be our own king, we want to rule over ourselves. And by our own sinful nature, we don't want God to rule us. Nations do not want to be ruled by God. They want to be self-ruled. Look at Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And yet 
here we are as the world thinking that we can legislate and organize ourselves, that we are the best at doing these things, that our government is the best that has ever lived and possibly been there when ours is actually quite short compared to other things that have happened in world history. Like how do we even know ours is so good? It's only been a few centuries compared to these other ones that have been way longer. So God laughs at it. That's cute. You guys think you figured it all out. That's really cute. Look at these guys. And so we're, we're just too foolish to be wise. And we're too evil to be good. And we are too prideful to admit that we're, we are wrong and we are weak. And how do I know? Because our King Jesus will return and he will reign, but people will still refuse to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That people still refuse to profess Jesus as their King today. Let me close with John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your king today, I ask that you repent, that you change, change your mind, change your thinking. We're going to have a couple people up in the front pews to pray, and if you don't know Christ, or if you have strayed from Christ, if you're distant from Jesus this morning, he invites you back. He's patient and he's kind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your patience. And we recognize, Lord, how imperfect we are, how rebellious we are. And I pray, Lord God, that we would take that time to think through who really is our master and who is really ruling us. And so often it is that person in the mirror that thinks they're smarter than they are, that we think that we know better. And so may we lean on you. May we be patient with each other just as you are patient with us, knowing that we're imperfect, we're weak, we, we are not wise there are many things that we need to do to improve on how to care for one another, love for one, loving one another, providing for one another. And so, God, where we can repent, we do as a church, knowing that ultimately you are king, that you are the one with perfect authority, power, and influence to guide our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take communion together at this time. So if you don't have communion elements, just put up your hand and we can get that over to you. The wafer on the top of this, I don't know what to call this contraption thing symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us. That Christ took sin, which the wages of sin is death, 
and he took it upon himself so that we don't pay this penalty ourselves. It's laid upon Jesus, and so we take this in remembrance of that. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. That he's paid the price for our debts. We take this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for these very profound and meaningful symbols. And every week as we take this, we're reminded of how precious the sacrifice you made for us is. In Jesus' name, amen.